Assalamualaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, and we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today's guest is Hedrick Nichols. I have seen her on Twitter. I was going to say the Twitter. Uh, I've seen her on Twitter. I've watched her YouTube channel. Uh, even went to Spotify this morning. Got caught up with a little treat. Yeah. Oh. And I was, <laughs> I played in front of my wife. I said, listen. And uh, yeah, we're going to have a good conversation this morning because we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, uh, particularly her experiences as an educator, what she does as a coach and consultant. We're going to throw in that musical past uh, people and get and see what else we get into. Uh, so for those who will be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify, will you please introduce yourself, Hedrick? Hello, my name is Hedrick Nichols. I am an author, educator, and host of the YouTube series, Small Bites, a series that gives you five equity strategies in five minutes. Oh, that's all right. So I'm always curious as to how people got to where they are. So what did you think you would be doing when you were growing up? Oh, let's see. My third grade self thought I was gonna be a doctor <laughs> until I found out I really didn't care for science much. My fifth grade self thought I'd be a writer. And then I realized that journalism is not the same as writing, writing, but I'm doing that. So that works. And then um, in high school, I actually started teaching. There, were, there was a program called Service and Exploration and Education. And so I began teaching. So I guess, you know, writing and teaching, I'm right on, right on schedule. Oh, so all right uh -oh. okay people so here i was trying to do my research on you as i do all my guests and so i'm on google and i come across your name and i see this album cover and it says open Spotify. So I click on it and I believe the song was like toxic. And I was like, I was like, grooving. <laughs> then I, I checked out another one. I said, oh, oh, so um normally. I've had educators on this podcast who, you know, I, they were an accountant in one life, uh, social worker in one life, a nurse in a one life. I've never had someone uh, with an R&B pop album before. So what, what, talk to me about that. How did you pivot? How did you have this musical career and then find yourself like in education? Um, well, I will say, I always say that the first place, I, first place I ever went after I was born 
was to church. My mama was a church musician. My grandmama was a church musician. My great-grandmama was a church musician and my great-granddaddy was a preacher. So that was that, that whole train. As a matter of fact, my son is at church right now playing bass because that's just kind of what we do. We do music. Um, so I did, I guess my first professional musical I did at the age of eight. Uh, first TV spot was also right, eight, nine, something like that. And uh, I continued did musical theater all the way all the way through high school, young adult years. Um, got a gig, did uh, worked with the Crusaders, uh, Donna Summer, Michael Bublé, just you know, wide variety of people. A good, solid working musician, and um, took it took me to Switzerland, and I lived there for about fifteen years, splitting my time between um, performing and teaching music, and also teaching adults. So. And you just was like, I'm done. Yeah, pretty much. I out my D I V O R C E becomes final today. Oh, no, I, uh, when I got divorced, I realized I really, my mom died shortly mm. before I divorced. So, and I'm an only child. And I really wanted to, I wanted to raise my son. You know, I did not want to be, it was nice having flexibility and over there, they come home in the middle of the day and I could be there to cook and that was nice, but I didn't want anybody singing my kid to sleep. You know what I mean? Every night or three, four nights out of the week. I didn't want that kind of life. You know, I didn't want to have to travel. I didn't want to have to get on a plane. And I did it, like I said, since I was eight. So it was mm. a good run and it's, you know, people think, oh, but yeah, the stage and oh my God, I like music. I sing all the time anyway. We got all the instruments in this house you could imagine. So I sing, We, you know, my son and I, we sing together. I don't miss singing. I don't miss performing because it wasn't my love of performing that drew it to me. It was just what I was good at. And so I could make a good living at it. And yeah. so now I'm, you know, I'm teaching full time and I'm, I'm good and I'm not teaching music and I'm happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about living uh, in Switzerland, because that's a long time, and uh, that's a really white country. Uh, how was that like? You know what? When my friends would come to visit, that's a, that's something they would say. Oh my God, you, there, there's only white people here, and I would say, and this sounds so awful, but I'm going to use it because I know uh, it, it's for black people. You'll probably understand. I said these are not my white people. The wounds that I have, I don't have with people from Switzerland. They really don't, it's, it's pretty much a homogenous society. They don't have a lot of colored black people, anything other than Swiss. Um, now that they're getting, now that it's changing, they're having some difficulties adjusting, but I didn't really have, in, I, I ain't had no beef with them. <laughs> so here in Texas, growing up a Southerner, uh, the wounds are, deeper here you know things happen here things happen have happened since my son got taller than me and grew facial hair here those are experiences that are un unfortunately uniquely american for example in switzerland i was an american not a black american not an african-american not a negro american not a colored american i was just american and so um yeah the diff it's just different hmm Interesting. Like I've never traveled abroad, uh, which that's on the list to do as soon 
<laughs> as the vaccines are popping out and everybody feeling good and nobody, you know, dying from this thing. Because uh, I've done a lot of extensive traveling in the U.S., but I really want to start going abroad. And I'm just don't know, you know, because when I watch the news and I see certain things that, you know, people getting upset, like even the whole Brexit thing. And I'm like, what are you people tripping about? And even them in my mind thinking, what would happen if the European Union decided, okay, England, you need a passport to come over here and made it difficult for you to leave England and also, and when it came to trade, made it difficult for you to get stuff. Like this whole, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. Cause I mean, I didn't live there. I'm just thinking from the whole thing of being a person of, of color and having your, for these people to base a whole thing of, we want to become England and our country is being taken over because all of these people of color can now travel here and live here and do all of this stuff. We 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 want it all out. And I'm thinking, ooh. Well, now I tell you what, that's not quite how it goes because England had, you know, their history is very much like ours. You know, they stopped the slave trade a little bit before we did, but not that much. So there are black people and then they, then they went and colonized everywhere over in Africa. So, you know, there are a lot of people who, people of color who live in England. There are a lot of people um, from India who live in England. And I when I talk, when I say live in England, I mean, they are like us. They are now four, five, six generations into just being, they're, they're, they're British. So what their their beef is more um, the influx of European immigration, Eastern European immigration, and then also countries, also people from African countries, but they were a country, that's just it. You, remember the EC wasn't the EC. It, you, Europe used to be a continent. It was not the EC until what, the eighties, early eighties maybe? They started piecing that together. So that's a new thing anyway. And England always kept the pound. Brit Brit the British did not give up their money. So they never had the Euro anyway. So they were always kind of like, you know, eh, one foot in, one foot out. That was, that was my feeling. But um, that's the weird thing. They had, you know, we have our issues because we have decided that it's liberty and justice for all and bring me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, you don't need to be free, free, blah, 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 blah. But then when that happened, then we want to say, okay, well, no, hold up. This is what American is. Everybody got to be like this. And the European Union is now dealing with that because they're saying, well, okay, we want to have some open borders. We want to, you know, let's, let's, let's join, let's all join hands, you know, kumbaya. And then wait, oh, hold up. That's going to change who we are. Well, yeah, it is. So you got to decide. And so they're, they're having some issues, but Britain, Britain's racism is pretty much legendary. It's, it's, it's very much like ours. They, they are working now to decolonize education, to recruit and retain, they call them BAME teachers, you know? Um, that's our BIPOC, what we say. But yeah, they, that ain't, that's not, racism is not new to England. <laughs>
I'm like, oh. Matter of fact, they were they were black. If you go back, I think three episodes or so back on Small Bites, I talk about there's they were British there's British royalty. But again, just as our full history has been obscured, theirs is, is as well. But Britain is not Britain and France are both people uh, countries full of people of color as well. Switzerland less so, but not Britain and France. Yeah, I just. It just makes me go like, uh, where do I travel, right? Like, I, I when I go somewhere, not only do you know when you travel, you know you want to go somewhere where where you can have a great time and see some good stuff and experience some great things, and you don't want to go anywhere where, especially now where where I am, you know, very cognizant of. Of, of this money game. I don't want to fund my oppressors. I don't want to go places where I am contributing to the evil of what another country is doing. And you bring up France and I, I just want Africa to just kick France out and then tell France, we ain't giving you not one more dime, nickel, penny, which I know, you know, they don't have our currency, but give them no nothing. Because I would tell friends, you colonized and we've been paying you uh, for centuries. So you got to go. You done got all you going to get from Mother Africa. Be gone. And go up in them and go up in them muni- in museums and give me my stuff back. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess Switzerland is fairly neutral. That's the thing about it. They stay out of everybody's business. Now, they do have everybody's dirty money in their banks. <laughs> but generally speaking they have maintained neutrality their army goes and protects the pope and that's it mm. they have a you know an army and stuff but yeah so mm. switzerland switzerland's a good neutral scandinavia is a good neutral place to go wow that's not like another place i'm, I'm just gonna stick out so uh we're, we're, the wife and i are gonna have to find us you know a good place i think toronto is is first on my list for the first Ooh, uh travel just sort of out and i know some people are like it's canada it's not necessarily you know for me if if, if i'm leaving here then for me it's going to count so that's going right. to be my first trip for me to go because uh, I'm very excited about Before that. Before Mexico, though? Uh, yeah. Now, my wife is Mexican. Yeah, then go to Mexico. Uh, n- no, I'm just not. I'm not going. I love Mexico. <laughs> she, and I'm not saying we won't go. I, I am just not. I know that if we go to sort of tourist areas, you know, uh we it's just it's the safety sort of thing for me mm-hmm. um you know just like united states that's just certain part of the united states uh or certain parts of my city i'm not going to mm-hmm. uh because you know you go like just like when i went like i've lived uh in boston and have gone all kind of places in the united states and you know normally you know you go to certain places and then there's certain places you know you may kick it too and then you go okay it does, we about two hours before the sun 
go down. Uh, we need to be going to another part, going to another part of town, you know, got to go back. Uh, so that's the thing that is concerning to me is the safety uh, over there. And, and that's the number one concern. That's one of the reasons I have not never traveled overseas because I've been concerned, you know, just about my safety. And then, you know, being in a, being a non-citizen, what happens to you when something goes down? Will you receive the same sort of protection, uh, medical care, et cetera? Like what, what, what would go? But I'm ready. I'm just ready to roll because I've, I've never been and I'm excited to see what this world has to offer. Uh, so you've lived abroad, you are, you know, you had this career, uh, people go to Spotify uh, and check that out. You're back in the United States, you're, 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 you're doing this work, you're teaching. Take me back to, when sort of this whole idea, this feeling of I need to share my 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 expertise, my experience to a wider audience. Uh, what was going on that motivated you, that tugged at you for you to become an educational consultant? Um, it's been a minute coming. I will go back to why I left Switzerland. Um, it is a very patriarchal place. And suddenly as a single woman, I started to feel, I started to be othered. You know what I mean? Uh, when, I, when I was dressed up going to go to work, aha, uh -huh, she's leaving her kid alone hmm, with the babysitter. Mm, mm -hmm, she's going out at night, you know, things like that. I was suspicious. And, I, and of course, because of my American wounds, I felt like there was something, you know, oh, she's a black chick. She, what is she doing late at night? And everybody, I mean, literally, Everybody in that county knew that I was a singer. I was always in the newspaper. I was on national TV, you know, so it wasn't, but it suddenly felt strange. Mm -hmm. And then my son came home and said, mama, guess what? They got me a nickname. They called me gangster. They told me, look, I'm gonna pull my pants down. Look, mama, this is how I'm supposed to wear them. No, baby, that's not what we do. And then the, I think one of the final things that got me with him was the teacher sent home a worksheet with letters, you know, A for apple, B for boy. And it said N for nigger. And nigger is just a little bit too close. It is also no longer the polite word there, although it was a word really that just means black. It is no longer the polite word to use when describing black people. And I wrote a nice note to the teacher and said, oh, I'm sure, you know, I know that you don't have a lot of uh, people of color here in this, in the, in the village, but, you know, this is a word that's offensive. We now use, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, and so she wrote me back. Okay. Mm. And I even offered, you know, I would be more than happy to help find some more resources that have some more up-to-date terms, you know, what I, and it was, you know, wasn't one of them, don't you be, it was just really one of those, because I, I know she doesn't know. So that was kind of like my first moment to consult, but she said, okay. I said, oh, okay, wow, that's an interesting answer. And I realized that nobody looked like my son, that I am going to be raising a black man in a country where nobody looks like him. And that just wasn't good. And so I came home and he's got all of the uncles and all of the cousins are little stair, they're all boys, little stair steps, literally all the way down. And so he's got community. And that was important to me because 
although I was married to a German man, Christopher, for those parents who, who talk about their, I don't know, you might be one as well. You call your kids biracial or multiracial or mixed. That's just never a term I use with my son. I say you're a black man of German heritage because I know that the world is not going to see the, which, half, which half of you is white. And that's, I prepared him so that when stuff started popping off this year, he already, you know, he wasn't, mom, they call me the N word. I didn't know. You know, he already knew that that was a possibility and he had community. You know what I mean? He's, he's, you know, his, his cousins experience the same thing. So they get to talk about things. They talk about it with the uncles and, you know, just things that his father really can't guide him in. I want him to have that, that black, that, that black bone. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you, I hear you. So fast forward again, son, this George Floyd got killed and I live in Texas, a very red state and the, the air just changed. You know, how you, you're somewhere and the, the, there's, there's tension and you can feel it. The air changed. It was already funny because of COVID and then it just changed again. Chris was skating, skate, he's a skateboarder sometimes and skated in the neighborhood, took a spill and some the dude said, why don't you just skate in your own neighborhood next time? He was in his own neighborhood and this is the neighborhood he's grown up in. So most people know him. That's probably somebody who's new to the neighborhood, you know, it's like, Sow. so that, that, you know, that got me and he took it lightly, but um, episode two of Small Bites, um, I talk about it. He said, he came one night and he said, mama, I had, I had a nightmare last, last night. And it was just all of this stuff that was, that, that was getting to him. That was, it was, he was internalizing it. You know, we've talked about, we've had the talk where we talk about now that you're driving, what do you do if a police officer stops you? Whatever he says, do. Yep, that's it. I can get you out of jail. I can get, you know, I can get you to the hospital if you get beaten. I cannot do anything if you are dead. So whatever they tell you to do, you know, so we've had those kind of conversations and it occurred to me that, you know, the teachers, the people who teach him, the people who are influential in his life, uh, some of the things that were said at, in a church youth group that was, you know, multiracial, that was culturally diverse and uh, black lives don't matter, that's stupid. And that was from a youth leader, you know? So all of those things let me know that there's something, and I've been, th- I've been feeling it because I started, started on a book um, a bit ago because it seems like I keep being this one, one black friend. You know what I mean? I keep, of all of the churches I ended up playing at in Texas, I ended up playing at a Lutheran church, which was also very much white. There were about three other black people there. Uh, my elementary school, you know, back in the day, you, you sent your child to the white school across town to get a better, better education because we realized that separate was not equal. And so all of those experiences, I, it, it's like, okay, I keep coming back to this spot and I'm very grounded in my community. So it's not like I'm, you know, always seeking that, but ending up in Switzerland of all, you know, not France, not England, Switzerland. Um, so it just really, you know, it just kind of hit me. I woke up literally one weekend and said, I got to talk. This mm. it's, it's time to talk. There are people who need to hear this. And, um, and that's it. So I have people who come back every week and they listen and, Post my strategy so that we cannot talk about rewriting history. We can talk about multi-perspectivity where we talk about, you know, I eat dinner at six. I don't know if Rhonda and them, they might eat at five. Uh, Karen and them probably eat at, at eight. 
all of those things are okay. They are all the truth about when do we eat dinner. And so what happened in 1607? Powhatan has a very different story than does John Smith. Mm. And both of those are historically accurate stories, but the truth we find in knowing all of those stories. So I share my stories and I share my strategies. Mm. So you brought that up and I, and, and, and I want to ask you, you this, cause I've asked other people who've come on the show and who do equity work. Um, when you're trying to, and I, and, and I've never heard what you said in terms of your approach come from anyone else but you. But when you're trying to have these conversations with people who they themselves may not even think they're biased or may not even think they have an inkling of, of anything that could be considered uh, racist or prejudice and you, you, you are trying to get them to sort of see other perspectives because because sometimes when confronted with those perspectives some people retreat right some there's or there's pushback or that's not me i didn't do that you know i had nothing to do with slavery or what, what have you and I am not at a place now where I devote any emotional intellectual energy with those people or towards having these conversations. I am of a different camp now of, I don't give a mm -mm, mm -mm, about certain things because I, I'm more so of let us build for us. You do what you gonna do because I can't control what you gonna do. But how do you have those conversations with people? And when those people do push back, when those people do have those comments of it, it wasn't me, that's not me. Uh, or they say, well, why are you upset? Or why are you talking about this? Or, or, or you, you, this type of uh, conversation or language is unproductive and it's just staring up stuff. How do you deal with that? Um, I usually go for empathy. My big move is, are you doing the very best for the students sitting in front of you? Are you doing the very best for the student, for every student sitting in front of you? If the books in your classroom, your child, I moved all the way back home and left my good life and career to make sure that my child saw himself reflected. And I tell that story and I ask, so do the kids in your room, do they see themselves reflected? in your books. When you tell about history, I, my, my favorite question is who else was there? Okay, so George, you know, George Washington was there. Who else was there? Thomas Jefferson was there. Who else was there? Sarah, uh, what was her name? <laughs> the mother of all of those children that, that, you know. Yeah. I can't think of her name right now. Um, but I ask who else was there? You know what I mean? John Smith was there, but who was Pocahontas really? Did she have a, was that just a, a Disney name or was that a real person? If it was a real person, who was her father? He was the chief of the Confederation. And 
did they like having their land invaded? You know, we talk about the colonial days in a very, oh yes, the heroes, daughters of the American Revolution. But it, this, this was my favorite story. If, if you ever watch Dish and the Tea or on uh, that one on Small Bites, you know it because I'm doing like a little cup thing. I say, imagine I say to you, oh my God, did you hear about our neighbor? Oh my God, he has got, he's got a trafficking ring. He got girls up in his house that he has people sleeping with. He's sleeping with, with underage girls. He actually, it wasn't his house to begin with. He actually went over there. He knocked on the door and then took over the house, stuck the people in the back closet. Now he running his slave ring out of there. That man is crazy, but you know, He's actually a good guy because he does a lot for the neighborhood. He goes out with his blower and he, you know, he makes sure the neighborhood stays clean and does the neighborhood watch things. So, I mean, even though he's done all that, he's a great guy. You would think that I was crazy, but that's how we talk about our founding fathers. You know, we don't want to look at them. We, we want to look at them like Flat Stanley. I don't know if you remember Flat Stanley. He was, they're not Flat Stanley. They are three-dimensional fallible human beings and some of them did some very foul things i don't know sleeping with sleeping with a raping a 14 year old girl and having her have your children at 15 i don't think that's a great thing to do i don't care how nice she was treated i, I, would, I wouldn't want somebody impregnating my 14 year old and we can talk about times were different but were they did a 14 year old really think it was time for her to have it? what did that feel like for her you know, there was a, a story recently that I posted about a Celie and she was, she actually sued in court because she was raped and she, well, she was raped and then she beat him over the head and died. <laughs> so they found out and they, they, of course, you know, accused her of, mur of murder. But when she tried to put up what her defense was, they said a slave woman does, has no virtue that the court should protect. You know, so, so. <laughs> I, t I ask him, so imagine, what's it like to be a 14-year-old girl, a 13-year-old girl, a 12-year-old girl? Do you think they felt differently then? You know, do, do you think that a woman ever feels differently when a man is on top of her violating her? Do you think that times were different? I, I don't think so. And so I, tr I really just talk about if your kids are not being represented, if you're not teaching everybody's stories, then you're not doing your best for every student. And if you wanna be a teacher, I really believe that most teachers, there are some that are, ain't nobody here for the paycheck. There are some that are here because you wanna be off when your kids are off, I get that. But most of us are in this profession because we wanna do right by kids. And the only way you can be, do right by kids is to get out of your per, get out of your own way, you know, move away from your personal feelings. I especially talk about it with, again, Texas, the conservative Christian community and LGBTQ students. You know, you don't get to have your personal opinion or your moral opinion. Are you doing your best for the child standing in front of you? And that's that's my angle. Mm. So let's get into your work, right? Uh, walk us through some of your workshops. How are they? How are they set up? Did you develop your own uh, curricula for it? Yes, yes. We usually start out by looking at some terms, and um, it's really personal. I don't. 
ask, I mean, it's interactive, but when I ask for questions, ask questions like defund the police, um, anti-racism, black lives matter, all lives matter. And I just put them up and then I say, you write down your own feelings. I'm not asking for volunteers so mm -hmm. you can be honest. And what do those different kinds of things, what does that bring up in you? And that's how you begin to find your blind spots. You know, mm. what if all lives matter means something to me and I teach in an integrated school where some of my kids are black lives matter and some of my kids are all lives matter. I, I still have to do my best for each of those, no matter which side I find myself on politically. You know, if I feel like what election was a fraud, that's crazy. I still have to go and teach my kids and kids are smart. I mean, smart, sensitive. They know if you don't like them or if you don't respect something about them, they know it. So you have to be able to get out, get, get away from your feelings. So I start with blind spots and then I go to the who else was there kind of thing where we talk about looking at multi history from a, from a multi-perspective point of view where we look at in this country, what did the Japanese experience in this country? You know, we, we, we're quick to talk about the, the Nazis and those, those camps, but we don't talk about our own camps here. You know, we don't even talk about Guantanamo. So, you know, we don't want, we don't admit our own crimes. And I, and I always say that we want to be loved. Humans want to be loved in spite of, not because of. I want you to love me when my breath stink and my armpits stink and my hairs, I got morning, morning breath and bed hair. I want to be loved then. You know, if I have to put my makeup and my, you know, beat my face and put on my pretty clothes to be loved, that's not love. And if you really love your country, it's not, that's what I talk about. It's not about, it's not about loving it because it's just a great country and everything is perfect. It's about looking at America in all of its fallibility and loving it in spite of. This is, this is home. You always love home. <laughs> mm. Mm. <clears throat> okay. Well, do the work. Do the work. I can't do it. <laughs> do the work. <sighs> It, you know what? It's, I think it's practice. I've been in that circle so many times. So I've had, to, I've had teachable moments all my life. Where I, I went to school in East Texas. It, I don't know if you remember, probably as late as the 90s, there was a man who got drugged behind some, uh, a truck. It, was, it got national news mm -hmm. attention. That's where I went to high school. A couple of years before I graduated, they burned it. At halftime, instead of having the bands perform, they burned a cross on the field. Mm. So they, there was no second half. So I've had those conversations because these are the people I these are the people I know. I know the hard cases, and I also know what inflammatory inflammatory language is to that particular audience. And I try to steer clear of it because I really want them to understand. I, I can't. I can't. I don't even. I don't even want to know if a coworker feels that way. Cause at that point I can't rock with them. Yeah. You know, we, we can't, we can't, I just can't do it. They're, they're you know, I'm, I'm Muslim and there's a teacher who said some things about Islam that I knew he hadn't studied. 
anything. He hadn't read the Quran, but he made this blanket statement. He didn't know that I was Muslim. And I told him, I was like, yo, I'm Muslim. Do I look crazy to you? Do I sound <laughs> crazy to you? And from that point on, my interactions with him have been very, very short, mm -hmm. right? I don't rock with him like I used to. We used to be able to have a chit-chat, good conversation. That doesn't happen now mm -hmm. because I was like, because I, I, don't, I don't even know how to have a conversation with someone who would make a statement like that knowing you said that because some you heard from somewhere else not because you took it upon yourself to read anything, to educate yourself on that. And then the, the other thing that came to my mind was we have Muslim students at this school. Now, how are you treating them? But see, that's why I can't not talk. That's exactly why I can't not talk, Dr. Will, because I know that the teachers in my school have no idea that in the Quran, for example, the story of Jesus' birth is there. You know what I mean? You don't celebrate Christmas, but you acknowledge him as a prophet. So in my digital classroom, I have several Muslim students. You know, I know how to say I'd al fitr and cause I cause I ask and I put the um the the, the Arab symbol for the book of Mariam I put in my classroom along with my little Christmas lights so that they can I know you don't celebrate Christmas. We're gonna do some Christmassy things, you can join in or not, but I just you know there's a certain cultural sensitivity that goes with being a teacher, and I want them to if nobody pulls their coattails, then they're gonna still be doing that same stuff for the next 10 or 20 years. And the little girl with the hijab is gonna be asked stupid questions because nobody will have an answer. You know what I mean? How come you always wear a scarf? Oh, sweetheart, that's not a scarf. Um, Aisha wears a hijab. But if the teacher doesn't know, she's gonna stand. So I have to talk, I have to talk. I can't do it. I just. <laughs> I can't do I, I don't look I don't have the tact to do it and, and honestly my faith is not where it needs to be for me to have that conversation uh with somebody you know <sighs> before I say or do something that is not going to be good for me uh no I just no I just can't I guess I just I just can't I just can't because I like certain things to me are just common sense Right, you don't need a degree or special training. It's just common sense. Nuns dress the same way as Muslim women, and not one person ever says a nun is being oppressed. Yep. When you look at the Madonna, Miriam, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with her, covered hair all co no one ever looks at that and has anything negative to say so then when you go to muslim women and that's where your 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 anger or whatever you feel is 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 pointed towards i'm just kind of wondering like hmm okay so that's why i can't have a conversation with anybody because for me at some point we're gonna have we're gonna have a problem 
that uh, I'm not, again, I'm not equipped to go say it. Now I'm just not equipped to deal with uh, because I treat people because I believe people when my faith tells me that, but I, I, I treat people with respect. I don't have to like you to treat you with respect. I don't have to believe in what you believe to treat you with respect as a human being. Uh, and so when people kind of go there, I'm like, what? Okay. So yeah, you know, you, you go ahead to do that work for us. Cause I can't. <laughs> That's how, you know what? I got you. Yeah. I got you. And I am a, as you can see, I'm a culture freak. You know what I mean? I'm a Christian, a black female Christian who knows plenty about man stuff and Muslim stuff and Mexican stuff and Cuba stuff. I, I find culture so enriching, just different cultures. You know what I mean? If I could go, if I could die and come back, I would die and come back as a different culture every month. <laughs> Oh, wow. okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So another work that you do is with restorative justice. Now I'm no look, I don't I'm gonna ask you about this because I'm a bit old school. Uh I believe you love the kids, you show them that you love the kids, you talk to the parents, but if they continue to act a fool, they got to go. Uh so I ain't got no problem with suspending or expelling kids because that's just I just, that's just me. I, I believe certain elements can destroy a culture. So that's just me. But I, I hear restorative justice is different from that. So what is it and what does it actually look like in a school or classroom? It makes, first of all, it makes sure the people who are not, who are already probably behinds and having their quote unquote learning gap issues don't end up being excluded from uh, instruction because disproportionately the people who are excluded from instruction are the people who need instruction the most. And basically restorative justice starts with building relationships with your kids. I have not had, it's been about two years since I've had, well, this year, of course not. But it's been about two years since I had to send a kid out for anything or call somebody to come get them or any of that. I built strong relationships in my restorative justice circles. They're literally a circle. You know, what did you do? Most kids don't see, just like the, you know, the guy said something stupid about Muslims. You know, most, ki most kids don't see that when they make a bad choice, it's not only them. Well, it was, I only asked the question. I know, but we don't talk during the 25 minutes of independent work time. But I had to ask, no, we don't talk at all. Well, how come I, because we don't talk during the, and so when they come to, they come to the restorative justice circle, well, why was that bad? Well, it wasn't bad because all I was doing is asking the question. Okay, so let me ask you this. Why is it bad to ask the question during that time? And then they get to think about it. Well, it wasn't bad. No, think about it. What, what, what could it have done? Well, did it, did it interrupted somebody else working? Mm-hmm. And what else? Well, maybe it made somebody else talk. Mm-hmm. 
And what else? Well, you and me had to talk. Mm-hmm. And then I had to call your mom. Mm-hmm. How long did that take? 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Was it quiet in the classroom when I did that? No. So they didn't get their work time because I was on the phone with your mom, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And what else did I have to do? I had to fill out the form for you to come to detention, right? Mm-hmm. And now instead of doing my planning and cleaning my room, I have to sit here and have this conversation with you. How long is that? That's 90 minutes. Okay, what do you think I would have been doing with that 90 minutes? I would have been doing this, this. That's right. So you stole from the learning community. Now, mm. how are you going to give that back? So they begin to see that their, their, their choices affect other people. And it kind of builds a stronger community. I had one little boy, he stopped me and said, Miss Nichols, you have a detention today? Can I come? <laughs> and they had to write reflections um, where they really thought about what do I want? You know, I want, I want to buy, if all you want to buy some Nike shoes, good. You want the latest, latest Air Jordans, wonderful. How are you going to get the kind of disposable income to buy a pair of $250 sneakers? Okay. How are you going to do that if you are constantly getting put out of class? So then, so just, just having those kind of conversations and knowing a little bit about what's important to kids so you can drop a name or two Ronaldo from a from my soccer lovers or you know uh gaming from a game you know among us from a gaming crew or just to being able to to relate and say hey if you want to you want to you want to design games you want you like to play games but if you want to design games then you have to learn coding and that's what we're doing here we can't do it if you run in your mouth and getting in trouble so mm. And, and it, it, it really gets good results because they begin to be, they, they take ownership and they, then they fuss at each other. <laughs> yeah, that's why I sound old school. <laughs> uh. <laughs> you ask my son, he might have a, you know, he might have a different view of my restorative justice as a parent. Yeah, yeah, because I was just thinking when schools do that, it's, they're working, you know, let me know if I'm wrong here, but they're doing work that should be done by the parent. Like kids should come to school knowing, you know, not to be disruptive, right? Uh, they should come to school knowing to be respectful. They should come to school knowing certain things like even when I get a chance to, to to talk to a kid you know I'll just say listen what the teacher tells you to do you just do it go home tell your parent tell grandma whomever is taking care of you you go home you tell them you let them come to school and you fight the battle I said because once you start popping off going off and cursing it's no longer about what that teacher did it's about what you did so just relax get through it let them take it up and now i don't know if they ever listen i don't know if they're gonna take it to heart i have no idea but i just what i don't want them to do uh particularly when they are young black men i need them to understand that you have to think you cannot just roll off emotion because in school, you may get suspended. In these streets, you could get killed or arrested because you did not have control over your person. 
And for me, again, I'm a little different, right? My father was born in 1947. So the way I was raised was a little different from, from, from these kids. Uh, it was so when when you talk about the restorative justice, like I, I like what you were doing. You know, I, I like that sort of getting them to understand the whole idea of personal responsibility. But then for me, it's like and that's a life skill. That's something that should have come from the home. And why is the school having to be involved in that? You know what? I I honestly don't know what happened. Our parents are roughly the same age. I don't know what happened between those parents and these parents, but I do know that they do not come to school with those skills and the generation of teachers sometimes between us and the young and the kids, they have not yet, you know, they probably didn't grow up hearing, I don't argue with no children. And so there's a tone that's set in my room anyway. So <laughs> there's not a lot of that. And when there is, you know, I want to have a whole conversation about it. They will be, you know, and then we clean, we clean stuff. They have to go clean up stuff and do things, go pick up trash because again, they have to pay it back. But I think it has to do with what we allow in school from the beginning. Mm. You know, we are not, we are no longer in the business of requiring students from home and requiring, requiring our kids and requiring our students to, um, to take care of business. Just, you know what I mean? Come to school to learn. You know, we, I mean, they're, I'm not going to go back and forth with a child. I'm just not. <laughs> but when you do, when you, you know, when some kid just keeps on and keeps on pushing the button these days, you do get parents. Well, you, 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 I, I don't like what you said to my child. <laughs> Your child shouldn't act like a grown-up. Your child can't be like they was grown, and I'm gonna talk to them like they grown. If you don't want them to talk to them like they grown, tell them to respect grown folks. I, you know, I. <laughs> so I don't know. I, there's nothing. I guess that's that's what I'm saying. I I can't do anything with that, but I do know that often kids do not come um, to school with those skills, and that's why we're having the issues. I think with um, with uh, distance learning. You know what I mean? They can't make them do, do, they're not being, they're not used to being made to do nothing. So parents are struggling. Yeah, that, that, <clears throat> that whole topic's a little different. So I'm going to stay away. Yeah, we got to get off at some point. So <laughs> I'm going to stay away from that one. But, uh, you know, you have a master's in educational technology and what we have seen in this pandemic is sort of the importance of teachers being able to teach with technology and having sort of in their toolbox, the ability to interchange and mix and match and just be able to pull in different tools to you to teach. What are, where do you see technology in terms of the future and its sort of importance and role of disrupting the traditional model and actually remaking education into something that is 
uh, actually preparing kids for this century? I think you're gonna have two sets of educators. You're going to have those who see the benefit of, first of all, have, having things all in one place, not having to pack papers back and forth, not having to uh, cut down trees, you know, lower your carbon footprint on Google Classroom is way smaller than it is when you have 186 kids turning in paperwork every day. That's just an awful waste of resource. So you'll have those and those who embrace it, not only um, digitalizing your worksheets, but really begin to look at the technology. How can I make, how can I make learning better, learning more efficient? You're gonna have that group of people and then you're gonna have those who say, kids just need paper and pen. And I, I guess there's a place for that, but honestly, is there? I mean, think about it. You know, we, 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 they don't even learn cursive anymore. Yeah, it kind of hurts my heart that they don't learn cursive anymore. You know, I had a kid ask me in class, when are you gonna give us our signatures? <laughs> so cute. But what do we do? I don't, I have not, I have not used paper and pen to do anything on, I, I think I, did I sign something on the, at the bank maybe? No, I signed it on an iPad. My yeah. son just opened up his bank account, his own, and I had to co-sign these 16. So I, I, that, I, it was on an iPad. I don't remember the last time I had to do anything official. Oh, when I bought my house, I actually got paperwork to sign and I still have the paperwork, the mortgage and all of that. But is it necessary that they use paper and pen? You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing. It's something we all learn. We don't want to give it up, but it's, it's not really necessary. And there's so many skills that kids are not learning. Like you said, to prepare for what's, what's about to, what's about to come. We are still basing education on Western classic, Western classical education from 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 5,000 years ago. And that's just kind of, so I think they're, like I said, two groups. One is going to say, we need to do this, but I am afraid that the systems are going to be, you know, holding, pulling at the reins saying, but we've always done it this way. But I, when I have teachers who push back on me, I always ask them, if you went to the doctor and they treated they didn't want to treat you with the latest medicine, the latest methods. Would you actually go receive treatment, you know what I'm saying, from that physician? None of them say yes, right? And so that's what, for me, I ask then as a teacher, you know, this is where, this is where education is going, right? This is where you you need to be prepared uh, to 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 face. I mean, if if our system will do what it needs to do, because what we have seen with this pandemic is those individuals whose jobs were not reliant upon technology and didn't utilize technology, could not be leveraged by technology. A lot of those people lost their jobs. And those people who could kept them. And as we're looking at some of these higher paying jobs, 
jobs that require the use of technology. Like you have school systems now, they don't even put emphasis on, let's say, in information technology or uh, computer programming or entrepreneurship, which we know all of that is where the future of jobs are, are going. So uh, before we go, what is your recommendation or call to action for those educators who they will listen to this episode, they hear about your journey, have seen other educators on Twitter show up on, on these graphics of speaking and presenting and they're thinking it's my time. Uh, what do you say to them about what they need to know about entrepreneurship and how they need to sort of figure this thing out for themselves? The other main reason I stopped singing was because although I love singing, I wasn't crazy about doing any of the other 90% of the job to become a, a, a singer, a performer, a teacher, all of those things, the gig, the, the gig industry, the gig, uh, uh, what do you call it? I forgot. Anyway, people who are, who are working gigs, working jobs, doing, con doing contracting work, that's growing, that's booming. But you can get a lot of tax, a lot of tax issues if you don't know what the laws are and know how to go ahead and set up your, you know, your LLC or know how to keep your personal finances separate from your, um, from your uh, business finances. There's just so many issues, so many things you have to con you have to have your contract, you have to be able to um, bill, you have to, oh, wow, I forgot, I, I need to send a bill, I'm glad I said that. You have to bill people, you have to make sure that they pay you, if they don't pay you, you have to go back and you know make your own collection calls. What are you going to do about all of that stuff? Do you have the time to do all of that stuff? You know, most people are looking at this as, oh, I'm just going to tell some people something. It's a it's a whole job. It's a whole job. I work now probably about 15 hour days, you know, wow. and it, that's what it takes because I, I, I'm fully dedicated to teaching and I'm fully dedicated to parenting and I'm also fully dedicated to writing and I'm fully, yeah, I'm fully dedicated to all. So, um, you know, talking these kind of conversations where you get exposure, all of those things, they, they do take time. And so I would say, whatever you think the time investment is, triple it. Mm. That's all right. That's all right. So thank you again, Hedrick, for coming on and uh, sharing your gems today. You know what? It has been a pleasure. I liked the conversation before. I liked the conversation during. I appreciate what you're doing here. And um, yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much, sir. You're welcome. Now, people, you know how I do this. This episode will be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify. I need you to subscribe and share. The stars are great. Thank you. But can you give me a review? Can you give me some comments? Because I'm trying to be found on Apple Podcasts. And I'm also trying to get Oprah on the show. Because I want to know we're doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Hedrick Nichols, for coming on and dropping so many gems. And I thank you again for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show. As always, people, invest in you. 
ADU. Peace.